Is it possible to be a heart-based CEO these days? Or what we see in the media, in the news, is all about you know, command and control. Well, in this new episode of the World Class Leader Show, I interviewed Ravi Venkatesan, the CEO of Cantaloupe Inc., which is a software and payment company providing end-to-end technology solutions for the retail market. So Ravi was amazing. So he shared with me how to change business model. But most importantly, we spoke about heart-based leadership, how to become a leader inside out, why the importance of mental state to drive transparency and trust and integrity. And finally, we spoke about the importance of consciousness on an organization in order to really to drive different level of results. So stay tuned. That is an amazing episode. It's something that you really don't want to miss. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. In today's episode, I'm very honored to have with me uh, a great guy, so Ravi Venkatesan, who is the CEO of Cantaloupe Inc., and he's based in Atlanta. So, And he has an interesting story, and we will be very happy to hear you know, how he shows up his leadership in your organization. So, and by the way, Ravi became a CEO of Cantaloupe in October 22, and he was before a chief operating office. And then he has an amazing, brilliant career before that. Ravi, thank you so much for being on the show today. Andrea, thank you. I'm really excited about uh, being here and uh, look forward to the conversation. Great. Fantastic. Ravi, is there something more that would you like to tell us and tell the audience about your profile, your story? Because it's fascinating. So what, what do you think are the most interesting things about your profile, your story, your experience, your career that ended up to being a CEO of an organization? Yeah, look, you know, I, uh, I grew up in, uh, in New Delhi in India and uh, all of my education is from there. Um, the first job I found right out of business school was Atlanta-based. And so my professional career has all been in the United States. And uh, although I've traveled considerably, I've always stayed uh, based out of Atlanta. Um, I think the, the, the thing that's uh, been interesting is I started in consulting and spent a lot of years with Accenture. And that gave me exposure to large companies, the types of business strategies they use, business models that work and don't work, and sometimes how you can have the best team in place. But if the business model is failing, it starts going downhill. And sometimes you can have a very average team in place, but if you're right place, right time, right opportunity, and the business is growing, then you know everything uh, starts going uh, up and to the right. So it's been fascinating to study that and I've tried to learn from it. I've always been a student of leadership and of business strategy throughout my career and, uh, you know, have had uh, multiple successful exits in changing the business model of a company uh, to where it makes sense and where it starts growing again. And that is really what I consider my strengths. So over, you know, through the rest of the conversation, hopefully I can shine a light on some of those experiences and uh, uh, help people that are listening. Yeah, and probably we'll, we'll come back to this because one interesting stats that I read a few months ago, but it's very, very um, present in my mind is, you know, the most CEOs, you know, when they've been interviewed by the major, I don't remember what the PwC or another, maybe Deloitte, but doesn't really matter. What they said is that the first real challenge objective that they have for the next three years is actually changing their business model. So there is a very high expectation of keep changing the business model of the organization 
which is normally, you know, it didn't happen before, you know, changing business model was not something like, right, that you used to change every, you know, two or three years, right? So I would like to go back to this. Definitely we'll have a question about business model because it's very interesting to understand how you perceive that, what are the pros, but also what are potential risk of doing that in front of the consumers and employees. Um, great. So tell us a bit more about, Ravi, about Cantaloupe Inc. I mean, it's a, it's a software and payment tech company. Would you like to tell us a bit more briefly, you know, what is the, the main core value of the organization? And more interesting to me, at least, is understanding a little bit more about the future, you know, how the future looks like for Cantaloupe. What is you, what do you have in mind? Something very inspiring for people. So, you know, Today in the audience, people can get inspired and say, okay, that's something I would like to do too. And not in terms of the same business, but in terms of insp inspirational goal, right, for your organization. So, yeah, uh, you know, and, and uh, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's important for a CEO as well as for the company to have a vision that inspires. Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, people who work for a paycheck, you know, you're only getting compliance from them if you want. Uh, amazing results, then they need to be inspired, right? And uh, and so at Cantaloupe, the vision we have is that we are building the global market leader for technology that powers self-service commerce. Right. And we already have a very strong position in North America in terms of technology that powers self-service commerce. And we are now taking that and expanding that through the you know entire planet. Right. The other aspect of this vision is more and more commerce is actually shifting from traditional ways of doing business, which is somebody is helping you buy a product or a service. So in other words, a store clerk. But with labor shortages and just consumer preferences shifting, that's moving more and more to self-service commerce. You know, people, e-commerce is a good example. People like buying stuff online because they don't have to talk to anybody. It's convenient and so on and so forth, right? So we bring that same paradigm into um, into the physical world, whether it's amusement, car wash, uh, vending machines, right. you know, kiosk-based grab, scan, pay, and go type experiences. So that's that's what we do, and uh, it's an exciting time to be in this business. Right, and it's I mean, you mentioned about being a real American, North American focus on organizations. Is it part of your inspiration? Is you know, become a global company and expanding and become international. What do you think are the major, I mean, the opportunity is very clear, but what are you think the major, I wouldn't say even risk, but, you know, potential constraints or limitation always something that we can definitely overcome as a leader, you know, doesn't matter yeah. whether the obstacle that we have, we can do it. So what is your view? Yeah. On that? And, 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 you know, it's, it's funny you ask because sometimes I think, especially in my job as a, as a CEO, your, uh, your strengths come from not your successes, but your failures. Right? So, uh, so I remember, yes. uh, you know, having a conversation with our chairman and saying, look, I can tell you the, the 19 ways not to do this. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and those include, I think too many times, especially American companies make the mistake of taking products or services and just exporting them out without contextualizing them and right. appropriately localizing them to uh, the not just it's not just translating things into a language but it's more 
blending in with the culture, the way of doing business, the way of interacting that each country is so different. Um, mm. And so, so the one way I know how to do it right is set up local teams, set up local operations, set up local customer service, and then tailor the product. So I almost think about the surround sound, as I call it, right, which is fulfillment, supply chain, customer service, uh, account management, sales and business development, all those functions and tailoring them to the local market with local talent is more important than mm. taking the product and converting the product over uh, to the local market. And that's uh, that's worked well for me in the past, and that's working well for Cantaloupe now as we embark on uh, starting with Europe and Latin America, our international expansion. Right. And I like that because it's essentially is really having high consideration about the culture of the country where you want to expand and then tailor your product, your solution based on not only, I suppose, the needs of the country, but also how the, you know, how the culture, the, you know, what is going to be the cultural fit between the organization, the product with the consumer that act in the territory. I like that. Correct. Is um is just you? I mean, is that your main challenge right now as a CEO from a business standpoint or from your personal standpoint? Is more about how to expanding properly, nicely, and healthy, or what are the typical challenges that someone like you right now potentially have in an organization like Cantaloupe? So the challenges are many, but the biggest challenges for a business like ours. They come from two sources. There are regulatory challenges, mm. uh, you know, because every country has different regulations, especially when you get into payment processing, right? So part of what we do is we enable commerce, and that includes creating devices that can be used in an unattended manner, right? I gave you the example of car wash or vending. These are all unattended environments where you're buying a product or a service without anybody helping you. So you have to do two things. One is you have to take a payment and that device has to have the consumer experience for self-service payments. Second, you have to make a machine or uh, you know an environment do something. In the case of an amusement ride, it's turn it on and off. In the case of a parking meter, it is take a payment, then open the parking gate, right? So that engineering of working with many different types of machines tends to be very challenging. And uh, and I would argue we are one of the best companies that do that. The other challenge is on the regulatory side where the payment regime in every country is very different. Like in the, in the United States, there is high interchange. The payment networks control it a lot. You go to the Middle East, there are super apps which people now use for payment, right? Which, uh, you know, which do a lot of other things, but they also use it for payment. You, know, you go to Africa, it's M-Pesa. You go to Asia Pacific, you know, they in China, they have WeChat used for payment. And in India, they have uh, Paytm and other such mechanisms. So, so the paradigm of how users and consumers are choosing to pay and what they pay with is very different in different places. And so tailoring our approaches to those has been challenging as well. But, uh, you know, challenges always present opportunities. And as we tackle those, we end up differentiating ourselves from our competitors. Yeah, it makes absolutely sense. And I had um, I had a client uh, that he operates in the fintech industry. And uh, when we we've been, I mean, when we work on a strategic planning with our technical team, 
you know, regulations and the impact of regulation has a, such a, at, the, at that time, of course, now as well, had a, such a big impact on what become possible, unfortunately. So regulation are constraints. The question always is, are the regulation driving the business or are the business driving regulations? So there's a question, interesting question about, you know, the influence the organization can have in terms of what can really do in terms of regulation. So great point. So to go back to, you know, the, the point that you, you already anticipated about business model. So you said you, you have this experience of changing business model in organizations. So you're bringing as well to Cantaloupe right now. Would you mind explaining, first of all, what's your approach in business model? What works, what doesn't, what are the potential constraints of that? Yeah, so, you know, the specific example of Cantaloupe, our business model was we sold equipment, which is point of sale terminals, as well as equipment that has the electronics to interface with different types of right. unattended environments, right? I gave you the kiosk example where you can grab a sandwich, scan it, make a payment and go. Uh, the example of a vending machine where you make a payment and it's dispensing some products, right? So the business model was you sell that equipment and then, you know, you, you get a one-time payment for it. And sometimes you manage that equipment, which leads to recurring payments, which is obviously more attractive. Uh, and more or less, that was kind of it. And we did some software. Now, fast forward, you know, two or three years, now our business model has totally pivoted to subscription. And I call it bringing the cloud computing paradigm to the self-service commerce space. So today, when we go to a customer, what we do is we say, look, here is a monthly fee. You don't buy equipment. You don't have to worry about setting up merchant IDs and accounts, nothing. All you do is you, you sign up for a subscription and you pay a monthly fees. And we take care of everything for you, including, hey, you know, what, what happens if the product is obsolete? What happens if regulations change? All that risk is covered on our side. And that model has led to, one, much more satisfaction with our customers. You know, they love it because they don't have to deal with a lot of headaches. And two, right. on our side, it's helped us improve our gross margin as well as our net margin and also build a very sticky recurring revenue-based business where we don't have to essentially go and hunt for every next meal, right? That's the beauty of recurring revenue models, in particular, subscription revenue models. Which is very scaling, right? It's definitely much more scaling business model than physical product that they need to be, of course, shipped to the clients, etc. Um, interesting. So how would normally customer perceive this such a big change of business model? Is it, I mean, you said there are clearly some advantages for the users for the consumers of having a subscription. But did you find easily for customers, particularly in the corporate world, for example, to switch business model from suppliers so easily? Yeah. Look, our experience is very similar to how when software companies went from yeah. license-based model to subscription model, right? The, the headwinds they had, we've had the same headwinds. And, and here is how the conversation goes. If you're a smaller business, and we, we make our offer to you, you immediately go, great, I don't have to worry about accounting, depreciation, I don't have to carry this asset on my books, I just get a service and I focus on my business instead of what's not core to my business. So they sign up immediately, they get it immediately. Easy, right. easier shift. Now you get to the very large companies that are our customers, they like 
buying stuff and depreciating it because it has tax benefits, it has financial benefits, et cetera. And so it's a harder sell. But once they get past, oh, I have to give this up. But when I give this up, here's what I get. I get not having to deal with all the headaches, not having to take the risk of inventory that I have with equipment going obsolete, not having to deal with repairs and troubleshooting and all of this other stuff, then they start liking this model as well. But it's harder with the large enterprise customers than it is with the small and medium-sized businesses. Yeah, it makes sense. It's also my experience too. I mean, the, the larger is the organization, the harder it is to let them accept the major changes just because there is some change. And also the complicated bureaucracy and process they have in place doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily help actually to embrace new things. So yeah, it makes absolutely sense. All right. So, and by the way, um, how many people are working right now for Cantaloupe, uh, Ravi? We have about 250 people that work at Cantaloupe. And not just in the US, given the expansion, you have people in the UK as well. So it's it's, yeah. it's a kind of global uh, globalizing your business right now. So interesting time. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your own leadership, uh, Ravi. So what what you know what people really uh, potentially think about you as a CEO, and what are probably so what is your style, by the way? So that's the real question. And also, what are the typical challenges that you see or you have as a CEO, which is not necessarily you know, the business model that we mentioned, but more about people, teams, et cetera. So what, what's, your, uh, what's your view on this? Yeah. So I would describe my leadership style as more heart-based and inside out. And to be more specific about it, I'm a strong believer that you know, how we manage our own inner state, our emotions, our feelings, you know, our, our mental state will reflect in an outer behavior. And that outer behavior directly leads to the kind of trust that somebody builds as a leader and the kind of relationships that somebody builds, which in turn lead to a reputation. And then based on that reputation, people either follow you to the ends of the earth, even if they don't know you, but they just know of you and have that impression or that image. Um, or not, you know, or they think you're a jerk and they won't do anything for you, right? Or they'll they'll fight you at every step. So I work on myself inside out, right? I manage myself first, and then I let that reflect in the right kind of outer behaviors, which are transparency, build trust, shoot straight, right? And so anybody who is in my organization or my partners or my customers, they'll all be consistent where they say, hey, what do you think of Ravi? I'll say, oh, he's a straight shooter. What you see is what you get. I may not like what I hear all the time, but I know where I stand. Those are consistent themes that I try to maintain, right? Nice. Then the second aspect is, you know, a lot of times, especially in the CEO role, you have ethical quandaries that you deal with. You know, a salesperson coming in and saying, hey, I can get this big deal if we give the client a sign-on bonus, right? So in all those, I tend to use the heart as the moral compass, not the mind, because the mind can mislead you because it's a computer at the end of the day that assesses things, right? But the heart is where integrity comes from. So that's what I meant by I consider myself more a heart-based leader because I'll hold that moral compass very high and say no to tempting but bad things each time and say no to anything that may be great in the short term, but terrible in the long term. And over time, my team knows that. 
So they don't even bring me that type of stuff. They make those decisions and that permeates into the culture of the organization. So those are those are kind of two things that I do very consistently to make sure that we are effective and uh, hold the bar high. Which is quite surprising, to be fair, right? Because, you know, I, I speak with a lot of CEOs and I work with a lot of CEOs. And, you know, your approach, which, by the way, is wonderful, is not necessarily typical, especially in the CEO, you know, in CEO seats. So people tend to be a little bit more directive, a little bit more control, not definitely dealing with a heart-based leadership, but more about, you know, fact-based leadership and driving, you know, their own way of leading the organization in their way, which is quite interesting. And uh, and I also like that couple of things that you said. First of all, this inside-out approach, which is essentially, it has to be first about me and then I'm going out with whatever the message is, etc. So it's really, sounds like you're working a lot with yourself and your uh, inner self, how you show up in front of people, but you have a sort of preparation, how you feel in that way. And also I, I like too what you said in terms of the relation between heart and mind. It sounds like you try to find the right balance, but not essentially taking big decisions driven by the mind, but primarily driven by heart. How this is perceived? You said, you know, your team knows that, knows you, knows how to deal with that. But, you know, especially in the technology company, quite, that's a quite, I'm quite curious, you know, that's a heart-based leadership is not really very common. Actually, it's slightly different with the typical tech guys, engineering engineers, waiting for instruction, giving instruction, I'm going to work on this. So I'm really much used to this sort of leadership, you know, kind of a directive, little bit out. Yeah. Let's make control, a little bit, little bit control leadership. How have you been able to shift? Maybe if that was different before, you know, your leadership style, we may be people that were used to operate with a different leadership. Yeah, it's it's been a journey. And uh, candidly, there are some leaders that were very talented that I've parted ways with because the culture that I wanted to build in the organization wasn't the culture that they would thrive in. So in some cases, we've, you know, I've, I've valued culture fit and philosophical alignment much higher than just sheer expertise. So in some cases, it had you know, you just parted ways with some people and the people that could adapt have shifted and are actually enjoying this culture of radical candor, transparency, you know, shooting straight and then holding the bar really high on integrity, even if that means we lose some business, we lose some customers, we lose some employees, doesn't matter, right? We hold the bar really high on that and, and they're enjoying it. They find it liberating, you know, because in other places right. they've worked. They had to make compromises with themselves and with what they would consider the right or wrong moral decisions to survive in the corporate world, right? And so now they come into a place where, uh, you know, the CEO is telling them, no, it's okay to lose business or it's okay to, uh, you know, deal with consequences, but make the right decision every time, all the time. And uh, and so that it's actually energized our leadership team quite a bit over the last couple of years. And uh, I find that they are more enthusiastic. They are more um, cooperative, more aligned, and uh, all rowing in the same direction. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And by the way, I think you're right. You know, when you said it's liberating, so people don't feel necessarily the same pressure of 
getting a client or doing something that is a little bit borderline just for the sake of performance and results. So, and uh, is it is it fair to say that you have been able to drive them performance with this specific leadership that you have? So, are you able to pinpoint your performance to specific results on, you know, with, with the style that you have used? Is something that you're able to to confirm? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And just to give you a few data points, right? Uh, even the six months that I've been in this role, our stocks up seventy percent. Our operating results have improved. We've gone from, uh, you know, being borderline profitable to clearly profitable with a trajectory that aggressively grows our profitability as well. Our revenue growth is back on track. We grew 20% last year. We are on track to grow 20% this year. So we've, the two key metrics that investors look for, which is revenue growth as well as generation of uh, profits and, uh, you know, EBITDA. We've performed well on those and we are on a trajectory to perform even better that we've articulated. We've also not been bashful about putting ourselves out there where last year in December, we did an investor day at the NASDAQ and laid out a three-year plan and said, here's what we are signing up for as a business. And and we are now starting to show results against that trajectory, which our investors have appreciated. So it's, it's transparency and, you know, more essentially putting our neck on the line with investors and uh, the results are showing up nicely. That's wonderful. Congratulations, Ravi. That, that's really great. So we spoke about the great things and, you know, the, your approach, the, the values that you see and you're getting from the organizations, you know, the performance, the results. On the other hand, what are, uh, you know, maybe that is a question that we left there for a while because, you know, it was important to discuss about the style, but what are the challenges that you now see yourself as a CEO? You know, it's keeping on track people. It's more about motivation, it's engagement, it's culture, it's, it's hiring the right people. So tell us a bit more about the challenge that you have as a CEO. Yeah. So it's twofold, right? The, the continuous adaptation of the business models and balancing, making sure that existing products are rock solid mm-hmm. and levels of service for those are what our customers expect and deserve. And then balancing that with putting enough investment in new products and emerging business areas and making sure sometimes that we are able to starve the stable existing businesses to feed the rapidly growing but nascent new business lines and new product lines. That's always a challenge, which we, which I deal with on a day-to-day basis, right? Ultimately, I view my role as building culture making the right capital allocation decisions, and then managing investor relationships, customer relationships, and employee relationships. That's kind of how I view my role. So then you pivot to the team side of things. And, you know, it's the old saying, right? What got you here won't get you there. So there is always, a, you know, talent upgrade is never a done deal, right? You're always upgrading talent and you're always retooling people and some people who are great to get from point A to point B are not great to get from point B to point C. And that includes myself and being very self-aware of, you know, what what range or what zone of the company's journey do I play well in and am I the best suited for? Uh, and where am I maybe not suited? And all the way down, you know, through the organization. So constantly upgrading talent and looking for different opportunities to unlock people's potential is something I spent a lot of time on. Wow. And yes, and 
So it, so it sounds like, you know, like, you know, what you said is unlocking people's potential. So you really believe in people that have, you know, much higher potential than what people sometimes think about, right? So, I mean, most of my work is about mindset. So making really sure that people get, you know, the top of their potential, but also, you know, they are able to express themselves in the best way possible. And that's, you know, to me, my experience, it all starts from mindset. It's not from, it doesn't start from behavior, from action. It starts from mindset because mindset is unlocked. Things. And what you essentially do in terms of helping people to raise the standards, you know, in, improving their talents, getting to a different level of their potential, is it through training? Is it through your personal participation, you know, with the front line? So what is your approach in terms of upgrading yeah. talents in the way that you, uh, you have described it? So th this may sound like a harsh judgment of our, you know, corporate world as a whole, but I think the way we are structured, uh, you know, we at best get 20% out of people, right? In terms of their potential versus their performance. So it's, it's actually pretty sad how yes. poor we are collectively in putting people in places and in positions where they thrive and their potential can truly be unlocked and they shine. That's, let's start there. Training is great, and we invest a lot in training, but I view traditional approaches to training as not that effective in unlocking people's potential. I think it's mm -hmm. engagement and opportunities that are not traditional that lead to more of that unlock happening. So what I do is I set up forums, and I personally get involved in it heavily so that people know that I believe in it and I'm leading by example, but I also encourage other executives to do this. Two examples I'll give you. I have a, a CEO advisory council of cross-functional team members that are at varying levels in the organization, but I get perspective from them, right? And, uh, and sometimes it may be a customer service agent. Sometimes it may be, uh, you know, the VP that's running sales. So, but, but I get very different, and I put these groups together and drive these discussions. So a very rich perspective emerges. That's one. The second thing I do is I have a, we don't have a chief strategy officer, and that's by design. But what I have instead is I have four individuals that come from different areas of the business that I consider high potential contributors, and that could easily be chief strategy officers or CEOs in their next role or the role after that. And I work with them to craft the strategy of the company and drive that forward on an ongoing basis. So that's that's another way I personally invest a lot of time and effort in helping those people unlock their potential. And what I find is that they are super energized in participating in this forum and they put a lot more into their day jobs as well as this. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. So it's about forums having these consistent meetings, opportunities to stay together and talk about strategies, ideas. So essentially, that is our unlocking potential of people. But also the other thing I want to pick from what you said is your own participation into this. So you are showing up, it's just leading by example, you're showing up in this. You just show to the organization that you are up for them and you are there rather than being as other CEOs, you know, there's you know, they're stuck in in their own office and they don't tend to have this, you know, conversation with the with people. Well, that that's amazing. Another thing that you I mean, we discussed this. You know, before starting the recording, you have this support, this personal approach about uh, 
meditation, mindfulness, I suppose, to, to you is very important. Personally, but I have a suspect that you actually apply this as well to some extent into the company, into the business. Would you like to explain what's your approach and why it's important for leaders to consider, you know, let, let's put in mindfulness as a as main and you know as a as a broader you know broader description about the about this. So why is important what you essentially do for yourself and for the organization to to do that? I think in a nutshell, just as you know, an individual human, we have consciousness and there's a level to that consciousness, right? There are people that are aware of a lot and kind of have 360 degree awareness. And there are people who have a much more myopic awareness, you know, they're either thinking about their next meal or, uh, you know, or uh, thinking about something that is very self-oriented and very selfish and around how they can be happier or whatnot. So you have a whole range there. And similarly, I think organizations have a consciousness, which is their collective consciousness of everybody that works there and, and their ecosystem, their partners, their customers, right, their investors. And if, if the impact that I can have as a leader, and especially in my role, is to raise the level of consciousness of my organization, then I think the results that follow uh, whether they are financial performance or to elevate the human experience of working at Cantaloupe as a company, those results are bound to be spectacular. So that's how I kind of focus and that's how I apply what I get from my individual meditation practice, which helps oh, yeah. me raise my individual level of consciousness to then the organizational context and raising the collective level of consciousness. And I think this whole concept of conscious leadership and conscious organizations um, will start to make its way more and more into corporate culture, even though it may take a little time. Yeah, I would like to to see that, by the way, because it's, for me, it's really music for my, for my ear. I mean, it's consciousness essentially is, it's really about building in people that level of very high sense awareness so they can really understand what happened to them, what happened to people, what also happened to the context, right? So it's so important to be very present, actually. And people sometimes, to your point, right, they have very narrow view, narrow focus. So they what they see is just what they see right now in front of them. And that's essentially shaped their own actions. So the the level, the ability of unlocking potential and to, to perform in a completely different way, it's, pre it's pretty much uh, correlated to, you know, how large or small is what they see in front of them because what they what they see essentially is really shaping their their ability to perform differently so i like that is this sort of group practice that you encourage people to do in terms of meditation or it's up to individuals then to raise their own level of consciousness with their own thing i mean this sort of input that you do or you you give as yeah. a ceo i i highly recommend a practice called heartfulness it's heart Fullness, right. Similar to mindfulness. And uh, uh, I've gained a ton, uh, you know, from that practice over the last 28 years or so. I've, I've tried different practices, including Zen and transcendental meditation and all kinds of things. But I found this practice to be the most effective for me personally. Uh, and I teach it as well to, and I've seen many people uh, benefit from it and, and evolve their leadership as well as their consciousness through it. Yeah, well, that's that's really great. That's wonderful. So, what else is um, 
is in your plan now as a CEO? I mean, besides, you know, the, 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 the business and the company growth, based on how much time you work on yourself, you know, on your consciousness, on your, you, you said before, you're a student of leadership. So I have a sneaky feeling that you, you're reading a lot, you work a lot on yourself, you try to be better. What is the next step of Ravi as a leader? So what is really is in front of you, your next level? So, you know, it's a, it's a journey in increasing on two fronts, humility and professional will, right? It's a, I, 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 I always remember this book, Good to Great, where mm -hmm. uh, all the research shows that those make CEOs the most successful. And, and what's interesting about those two attributes is you're never done, right? It's, a, it's kind of a journey to infinity because you can, you can as a leader, you can learn to be more and more humble and use your experiences to feel more humble and really make that part of your DNA over time. Um, and, and look, I, I look back, uh, you know, as a young VP uh, a decade ago, you know, becoming a senior leader, and I thought the world of myself. Uh, I don't now because I've had a lot of lashes on the back. And I think part of what I look forward to is uh, that becoming even more core to me, right? True humility, not, not outside humility, not just expressed humility, but true humility that's inside out. That's one. Uh, and I think it contributes tremendously to uh, a leader. And then the second one being the professional will side, right? It's just the sheer ability to apply your will to make something happen because ultimately as leaders and especially as CEOs, we are making something happen many times against all odds, right? half the stuff that most CEOs come up with and make happen, uh, most people would say, hey, don't even try it, right? And, and so it requires a tremendous amount of will. And so increasing that will over time is a, is a journey that I'm looking forward to continuing. Yeah, in other words, it's like stretching as well, you know, yourself outside of your other comfort, so in, in that way. So exactly, I love that. So great stuff, Ravi. Um, the few three questions I would like to ask you for a very quick answer is, is there anything specific, you know, that you learned in your whole career? One thing that you learned that to you until now is the most powerful learning uh, as a leader? Uh, being a talent magnet, you know, mm. be, be that magnet that can attract tremendously capable talented leaders, employees, people in general, right? Being a talent magnet is my number one leadership lesson. And I can see why people can be actually attracted by you in the, in the way how actually you're showing up as a leader. So well done to, to you, Ravi. On, um, on the other end, is, is there anything that maybe you would have done differently in your whole career or you think everything that you've done, you know, it, it's important for, for a reason? I think focusing more on people versus results through okay. especially the early parts of my career would have served me well. Uh, you know, in the early part of my career, I burnt a lot of bridges and uh, mm. uh, broke a lot of glass in the interest of achieving results. And in mm. retrospect, I think I could have achieved the same results or even better uh, had I focused on the people and the relationships ahead of the results. Right. Well, we should actually just using this 30 seconds, one minute as, a, as an entire episode, because that's amazing, you know, what you just shared uh, with me. And, and by the way, 
I probably felt a little bit the same early in my career because I, I had a very fast track career. I probably didn't burn bridges, but then the the you know the importance of people around me was a little bit marginal to what is right now. So I can feel where it's coming from. Amazing, amazing sharing. Uh, last question about your approach to learning. I mean, we discuss about consciousness and you know the harm, you know the, the way how you deal with meditation hardness. So, but tell me more about your your way of learning. Is it is it something that you do through reading? Through it's just meditation. It's about. I mean, what's your approach to learning? If it's reading, is there any specific book that really changed your life? I, I read, uh, I'm an avid reader. I read across, uh, you know, various good authors. I think if I have to pick one book, I would say James Clear, Atomic Habits was very powerful uh, and was game changing for me because one of the things I suffered from and have always suffered from is a lack of discipline. And, uh, you know, I, I viewed that as a serious chink in the armor uh, for me as a leader and even as a person. And, uh, and James Clear's book really helped me move the meter on that. In general, I, I believe a lot more in the school of life as the best teacher. So I try to learn from my experiences more than reading a book or going through a course. But I do, you know, I subscribe to Wonderium, which is, it used to be called Great Courses. I subscribe to Masterclass. So I try to go through, you know, online video-based learning in interesting topics that, uh, that appeal to me and try to keep my both my mind and heart kind of open and refreshed through uh, through new stuff. Oh, that's great, wonderful. And by the way, Atomic Habits is one of my favorite books too. So we have this thing in common, and actually, it's one of the books I give to my clients as well on a one to one. Start thinking about changing behaviors differently. Um, and again, without changing mindset, it's still complicated changing behaviors. But as James Clear says. Once the behavior, one of the things probably I probably love most most about that book is the importance of changing a behavior that becomes a new identity. So it's very much close to your identity because otherwise it becomes just, you know, very short-term results thing, yeah. which is not really empowered by a different way of seeing yourself. So it's to beautiful. me that yeah, that is one of the the, the the major insights of his work, which is brilliant. Ravi, thank you so much for this interview. I mean, he was Amazing, literally amazing. It's not so common to speak with a CEO that has your attitude, your approach, your style. So it's refreshing. It's also, I think, is a fantastic inspirational message to those CEOs in the audience today that maybe thinking they're either not happy with themselves or thinking that maybe they have to change the way how they are leading the organization. I think you gave us such a amazing insights and practical tools to think about how you can actually be a hard based driven leader in organization and still be very successful so thank you so much ravi for being with us where people should go if they want to know more about you or want to get in contact um andrea first of all thank you for uh, all the insightful questions and uh you know i i do a lot of these podcasts but uh i think you extracted a lot more of uh, <laughs> you know of uh, what i would want to share so i appreciate that um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, Ravi Venkatesan is easy to find on LinkedIn and you can, uh, connect with me there. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, my handle is again, Ravi Venkatesan there as well. Uh, and of course I'm accessible through Cantaloupe's website and, uh, and other channels also. And my email is, uh, just my first initial, which is R and my last name Venkatesan 
uh, at cantaloupe.com and I'm happy to uh, uh, connect with people via that channel as well. Wonderful. Ravi, thank you so much for being on the show again. It's been really a blessing. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you.